What is our great purpose? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Ryan Patrick Hanley. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Ryan Patrick Hanley. Ryan is professor of political science at Boston College. Prior to joining the faculty there, he was the Mellon Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Marquette University and held visiting appointments or fellowships at Yale, Harvard, and the University of Chicago. He is the author of Adam Smith and the Character of Virtue and the editor of Adam Smith, His Life, Thought, and Legacy, and the Penguin Classic edition of Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, among many other things. His book, Our Great Purpose, Adam Smith on Living a Better Life, will serve as the basis for our conversation today. Ryan, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks very much for having me, Alex. It's a delight to be here. And it's great to have you on, Ryan. So we base each of our episodes around a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what is our great purpose? And that's really an opportunity to discuss not only your thoughts on this and your book on Adam Smith's thinking around it, but also the relevance of of these questions today. So I figured I'd just choose this place to start. In the intro to your book, you refer to Smith as actually providing us a philosophy of living to consider through his work. And that is the lens you view his work through. So as a context setting device, or why are we talking about an overall philosophy of living today? And what, what is that? Yeah, it's a great place to begin. Let's, let's dive in with the big stuff. Um, well, here's one of the great ironies, I think, is that we don't often talk about philosophies of living. Uh, we talk about things that sort of sneak up on that. We talk about things certainly like um, self-help books or a dime a dozen, right, that that profess to give us advice for how to tackle specific challenges in our lives. We are starting to see even other versions of this, certainly uh, not just in Canada, but worldwide. Jordan Peterson's made uh, lots of news, among other things, with um, giving us rules for living. Um, And that maybe gets a little bit beyond a typical self-help book because it at least aspires to be more holistic. But I think that there's something to be said for a philosophy of living um, in the sense that I think really indeed Smith uh, aspired to give us one, but also it's really, you know, it's an idea that is very sort of untimely because it really comes to us from ancient philosophy, philosophers such as the Stoics predominantly to some degree, also thinkers like Plato that were interested in having us think genuinely about what is good for human beings uh, and um, how we might achieve the human good, not just simply, you know, achieve a specific goal, like a self-help book might tell us, you know, how to lose 15 pounds in 15 days or something like that, but how to develop an approach, a thoughtful approach to living well uh, that uh, is grounded in genuine principles. And, and one of, on that exact note, one of the ways I like that you put it in, in the introduction to your book was that sort of really splitting it on the difference between, if you will, learning how to get ahead on the one hand and the, on the other hand, learning how to live well, whereas like one, the latter is more of like a holistic approach, as you said. But the first one is really about like it's more goal oriented, it seems to me, at least if I understood that distinction correctly. 
No, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that's been the most, well, there's so much that's been remarkable about the politics of the past five years or so, Mm -hmm. but really, I mean, we live in a, in a society and this isn't new, a a, a society of get aheadism, but um, the obsession with winning uh, as if it's uh, not just the thing that matters most, but the only thing that matters. And, you know, that that's that's had various, con, you know, recent ways in which that that's emerged in our contemporary political discourse. But that's also something that's been endemic to capitalism for a long time. People yeah. associated, I think, on a stereotypical vision with um, deals, winners and losers, people who are suckers and people who are able to get what mm-hmm. they want. And I think that that's an extraordinarily naive way of understanding the genuine benefits of a free market economy as Smith, among others, mm-hmm. helps us see. But it's also Smith thinks, and he helps us see this, is it's a very short-sighted way of uh, living one's life as if the only goods in life were to uh, you know, stick it over on your neighbor. Uh, in fact, there's all kinds of goods. And from the very first sentence of the theory of moral sentiments, his wonderful work in moral philosophy, uh, from the very first sentence on, Smith reminds us that we're very complex individuals. Um, And while winning is nice, uh, it's hardly the only thing, certainly not the most important thing, and one among a vast number of goods that uh, he thinks are really genuinely necessary for a genuinely flourishing life. And actually, on that exact note, I'm glad you brought that up, because I I wanted to drill a little further into you know, your thought process on how to think of these challenges that we face every day and so on and so forth, and also how, how Smith's thought is structured. But but you, you say, you know, the way you think of it is ultimately driven by what you say Smith ultimately took to be the key challenges of life, which is the sort of like the two subcategories you just noted there, which is one, the challenges from the way the human beings are, are made, and two, challenges that come from the way the world is today. It's very interesting that our sort of win culture, like you said, get ahead is, is very much focused on number two, right? Like, you know, I have a career, I need to build how do i get ahead how how is the world how do i navigate it uh, we'll get to that in a sec but, but nevertheless like i actually kind of want to hear you elaborate on both those a little more so when we put our smithian kind of cap on what are the kinds of things we're thinking about if we start with challenges that come from the way human beings are made what do you mean by that yeah and and i appreciate especially you're inviting me to um Put, put my Smithian cap on and to think in terms of what Smith might have said. I've spent so much time thinking about Smith over the past quarter century that for better or for worse, I'm not always sure where the line is between what he thinks and what I think. Uh, we sort of, uh, or I, I was about to say we grew up together, but I'll say that I grew up with him. Right. Uh, and really what I hope to do in the book, in all honesty, is really um, to present his thoughts on, on these questions uh, in a way that I hope will make them accessible to a, to a wide variety of readers. Um, but but then as far as the specific question goes as to how we're made, I, you know, I, Smith says something, I mentioned the beginning of the theory of moral sentiments. Well, really, this is the question that he's on to from the literally the very first sentence of the work onwards. The first sentence of the work is a statement about how we're made or what we call human nature. We might be inclined to say today how we're hardwired. And Smith in a line, I was about to say a very famous line, but at least very famous in the circles I run up in, in professional Smith scholars. Um, the first sentence of the work is how selfish soever man may appear. There are evidently some principles in his nature that interest him in the well-being and the fortune of others. And actually his word there, be even more precise, the happiness of others. Mm. Um, uh, and so, you know, Smith as the economist that he is, was profoundly sensitive to the ways in which we are certainly 
self-interested and hardwired to desire to, as he says, better our condition through, among other things, economic advancement. That's a big part of us. But from the first sentence of this work in moral philosophy, he shows us it's not the only part of us and that we also have genuine interest in the well-being and happiness of those who live with us. And that's not self-interest. And a lot of times that can be at odds with self-interest. So I think that one of the things that makes Smith really so profound to me, one is that he just gets the anthropology right. I think it's right. I, it's, you know, various uh, experimental economists, among others, have shown this in labs. I mean, we are self-interested, but we're not only self-interested. We have genuine, robust interests in the well-being of others. But how do we resolve those situations in which we find those potentially at loggerheads, perhaps across purposes, and perhaps in atmospheres that tend to favor one or the other? So I think one of the questions is um, that Smith presents us with is, what sort of life can we lead in the world in which we live that allows us to do justice to both sides of our nature, the side that really is concerned with ourselves and our well-being, naturally and rightly so, but also is concerned with the well-being of others. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying, ultimately, the way to answer these questions as they tumble out is obviously to figure out first what what it is that we are and why we feel and and, and what we're interested in and so on and so forth. So for going further into some subcategories, hopefully the listeners keep all this in, in, the, in the all this nerdy stuff in, in their head as I go through and split things and go down further because I do find it very fascinating. Another thing that you uh, talk about keeping sort of both in mind as we go through Smith's thoughts is that he he says what we need to do with our lives if we hope to overcome the challenges, the kind of challenges that you just outlined, for example, is essentially one of one and two. One, we need to adopt certain virtues, and then two. We need to develop our view of ourselves that's impartial. Now, of course, I know the, this whole thing unto itself, although I have it as one question with two parts, could be like hours of podcasting in either direction. But at the highest level that we can, let, let's start with what he means by we need to adopt certain virtues. If we can sort of encapsulate that somehow, what, what is Smith really interested in here when he talks about people need to adopt certain virtues? Yeah, I like the way that you put it, because I think this is the right way to put it. Um, you refer to virtues in the plural, which uh, I think is a helpful way of uh, an initial way of getting our heads around this. Sometimes we talk uh, about people being virtuous and Smith himself talks about um, having a virtuous character, but he's also much more fine grained. He suggests that there are individual different virtues that are very important to human beings. Um, and that uh, when they're cultivated, they enable us to flourish um, in ways that are beneficial both to, to go back to what we were just talking about, both to ourselves and to others. And so he outlines several of these virtues. Um, some of them are more directed towards the self-interested part, and I find them especially uh, worthy of talking about today. Um, Smith spends a lot of time, for example, with the virtue of prudence, and prudence has a long and storied uh, uh, history going back to classical antiquity. Uh, uh, but Smith gives it a very particular spin. And he thinks about prudence in the context of a modern market society. So he's not writing for fifth century classical Athens. He's writing for the sort of commercial trading world in which we find ourselves. And so what is prudence? He describes this figure called the prudent man. And he distinguishes the prudent man from what we might call an imprudent man. Both of them want to make a buck and to get ahead in the world. 
Both of them are defined by trying to advance their self-interests. But the ways in which the prudent man and an imprudent man do this are vastly different. The imprudent, the type who wants to get rich quick, who is willing to take on uh, very risky speculative adventures, even with uh, the money of others rather than his own. The prudent man, too, wants to get rich. But the way in which he goes about it, he has a certain self-control that leads him to invest gradually, to play the long game, to seek incremental benefits day in and day out. He works hard to get what he does. He tries to be honest and forthright with his neighbors so that they could be better trading partners. And so you see that like the end game is still advancing your self-interest, maximizing one's own utility, but it's in the how that one does that. And so that's where the virtue of prudence, I think, is really useful. Um, and Smith does similar things with other virtues. Uh, conversely, on the other side, he talks, for example, a great length about the virtue of benevolence, which he thinks is a real genuine human excellence and shows us uh, uh, ways in which we can most efficiently and effectively uh, be useful to others and help promote their happiness. And so, um, you know, so, so, so these different virtues that Smith brings to the page by uh, illuminating them in the figure of various characters. One of the things I love about Smith's ethics is that he doesn't give us this dry discourse on the nature of prudence. He describes the prudent man and he gives us a little bit of a vision. He invites us to see this figure with his mind's eye. And I see no reason why, even though it is very much this language to talk about the prudent man, why he wouldn't also talk about the prudent woman. Um, these are not uh, gender bound virtues. These are excellences of character for all those who live in a society that rewards pursuits of self-interest. So I enjoy, you can tell I like talking about this stuff, but I really love teaching this to my students because these are vivid figures and Smith himself was a great teacher uh, and really helps these uh, images come to life when we read them on the page. Right, and 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 I want to move on to one more thing, bef but before we leave the the adopting certain virtues type of discussion, I want to drill a little further into something you, you quickly touched on in, in your response there, which is that, you know, um, how in a way you didn't say it exactly like this, but you know how these things still are within the umbrella of self-interest, but we need to sort of take a wider view on what kind of virtues kind of come along with uh, and can be paired with where your self-interest in a way it just reminds me to, to essentially say that I think it's also important to spend some time on what Smith meant and might've meant in a, in a broader sense of self-interest than a lot of people are used to throwing around today. So like, you know, like when people talk about selfishness or self-interest, and for a variety of reasons, some of the proponents, even classical liberals, uh, you know, within the 20th century have caused some of this damage, in my opinion, too. Like, it's often very sort of commercial transaction focused. Like, this person's trying to make this purchase or this trade, and it's okay that they're focused on their self-interest. But it certainly does occur to me that self-interest and what the interest is could be is certainly a lot wider than just like that micro transaction or, or, or whatever else. Uh, you, you know, in, in one example, you know, for instance, one can think of uh, something that would make you happy is obviously seeing like, as you're sort of touching on seeing your family happen, for instance. So in a way that's self-interest, but it's certainly not in the, in the narrow sense that we're used to talking about it. And I've always found that very interesting because I think that's a point of confusion just from the get-go for a lot of people when we talk about Smith and self-interest, if you, if you agree. Yeah, I, don't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you're preaching to the choir on this one. This is uh, one of the things that um, struck me. In, uh, I edited uh, for Penguin Classics one of Smith's works, again, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. 
And one of the most striking things about that work is that it's not that he doesn't use the term self-interest, but it comes up fairly rarely. Mm. Instead, Smith's own favored word to describe the phenomenon that we usually, or the the category that we refer to as self-interest, it's not self-interest, but something different, self-love. And that word, I think, rings a little foreign to the modern ear. I mean, if we talk about things like, you know, in modern social science, egoism versus altruism, or in modern economics, self-interest and utility maximization, we, we all know what that means. And Smith certainly means something like that, but he really is very conscious in using this term self-love. And there's a variety of reasons for that. One is very historical and comes out of a bunch of 17th century French theological debates that I won't bore anybody with here. And so he is a product of his context to that uh, extent. But he also recognizes that self-love is a very interestingly malleable phenomenon, right? We sometimes think about self-interest in terms of as, as if it's something very static, uh, something that can be easily quantified. Self-love, Smith was very aware, could take a lot of different forms. And that one of the most interesting things about it is that it's educable. People can love themselves in very different ways. Mm. I, I know it sounds like I'm channeling Justin Bieber or something here when I talk <laughs> about how people love themselves. But, you know, there is there's the vulgar and familiar sense. And Smith is very critical of that. But he also thinks that there's something lovable in human beings and that it's not an unhealthy thing in the right way to indeed love oneself, and that that can actually be the beginnings of a foundation for genuine love of other people. So, you know, uh, this idea that Smith is easily reducible to self-interest is very familiar. And I'm a a product of the University of Chicago. And so the great George Stiegler, the economist there, very famously proclaimed that the self-interest is the granite foundation upon which the entire wealth of nations is constructed. He's not entirely wrong, but I wish he would substitute, wish he would have substituted self-love. I think he would have gotten the text more correct and show us a little bit more of the richness of Smith's um, sensitivity to the different ways in which this phenomenon can be expressed. Right. And I think we'll definitely return to those sorts of themes as as we go along here. But but moving along to the other point, I just departing. You know, the idea, as I said, at the very top of this section here, where we're talking about Smith on the one hand saying we need to adopt cer- certain virtues if we hope to overcome some of the challenges of life. But on the other hand, we need to develop a view of ourselves that's impartial or at least start thinking of ourselves in, in the way others see it. If you could elaborate on that, that, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Smith worried about really significantly is our natural propensity to see ourselves as the center of the universe. And um, again, I say that that's a natural propensity. I think Smith thinks it's a natural propensity. And in some ways, that's not a bad thing. He firmly believes that each one of us is best positioned to take care of our own needs most effectively. And that's a very important point for some of his arguments for things like free markets and small government. But at the same time, he recognizes that there can be a pathological side to this, that When we begin to take ourselves too seriously, there can be a bit of crowding out that um, what is at first a natural concern for oneself then becomes an excessive and unhealthy concern for oneself in which we become not only 
even more sensitive to our own wants and desires, but ever less sensitive to the needs and desires of others. Mm. So Smith thinks that um, very famously that we need to, as it were, develop a perspective on ourselves to have to generate the capacity and use the language. Alison's absolutely right in the text. This idea of becoming the spectator of ourselves or to see ourselves as other people see us. One of the effects that happens is not only do we become a little bit more an objective judge in our own case, but we start getting a little distance from our own feelings, our own passions, the sorts of everyday cares that sweep us up. And we start seeing that, you know, in fact, um, we're not the center of the world, that other people have their own dear concerns as well that demand recognition and respect. And we begin to generate a little bit more of a balance between how we understand ourselves and others. And one of my favorite phrases in the theory of moral sentiments is one that Smith uses no less than three times in almost the same words. And he tells us that the hardest of all tasks of morality is, as he says, quote, um, um, to um, see that we are but one of the multitude, no better than any other in it. And um, to really see ourselves as one of the multitude, to have this objective, impartial perspective on ourselves is a really important step, among other things, to what it looks like to live in a society that genuinely values equality. Uh, Smith really thinks that one of the greatest challenges to equality is not things like you know, income inequality and all these other familiar phenomena, though he has definite worries about that. I don't mean to sweep those under the rug, but there's a moral psychological aspect to this. It's not simply economic or fiscal. There's also this um, simple propensity that we have to see ourselves as just really so important and um, uh, and the concomitant aspect of that is that we tend to undervalue others. And one cannot maintain a liberal egalitarian society if the different agents are working or going through life uh, from that perspective. And so really for the health of democracies, for the benefit uh, beneficial operations of free markets, Smith really does believe that this is an important skill for us to aspire to achieve objectivity on ourselves and a real sense of appreciation of the needs and interests of others. Yeah. And, and to add to that, if I may, it's, it's very interesting that, that you said that, because one thing I want to also note here is that, uh, of course, as you said, like, you know, have developed that impartial or impartial view uh, and really getting that impartial spectator in practice, as you said, is ultimately going to lead to the, the better treatment of others and so on and so forth. But you'd even note in, in the book, which I find very interesting, that it's also that uh, ability and developing a view of ourselves as impartial that also enables you to sort of zoom out and even tying it back to our philosophy of living discussion actually see your life I think you said in the book sort of like with an actual beginning middle and an end and tying it together with purpose and in other words if one you know has a as a really heightened case of as my sister introduced me to the term of, of main character main character syndrome if they have a heightened case of that they'll never be able to zoom out and actually see sort of you know how they can actually bring a larger purpose to their life beyond I don't know I want to buy that sandwich today or whatever else yeah I know and this actually ties back a little bit to what we were saying about the prudent man I mean one of the things that Smith likes so much about the prudent man is that he's really thinking long distant end game mm. and um I, I once heard um uh, the man who founded Vanguard Industries, which is a large mutual fund uh, uh, company in the U.S., um, uh, was a man named Jack Bogle, and he was a great admirer of Adam Smith. 
And he, the example he gave is that the best way to invest is to put your money in your 401k, never open up any of the statements. And at the end of your life, you'll be very pleased with what you put aside every month. It will have grown. That's the way to do it. But that requires this discipline, this self-command, and this understanding that you began in one place and gradually over time, you'll come to another and trying to understand the long trajectory of how it all goes together rather than focusing too much on any one individual moment within it. It's, it's, it's hard. We all privilege the now over the far distant future or the far distant past. But um, seeing things in their holes is one of the most, um, I, I, I think, distinctive elements of Smith as a social scientist and philosopher more generally. And it certainly applies to individual human lives. Absolutely. And it's actually right about that time where it'll be good to take a break. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Ryan Patrick Hanley today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Yakov Mikhailovich, and Alessandro Fiorello. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with speaking with Ryan Patrick Hanley today. So, so Ryan, I think the first half was great. We did we did a lot of a lot of context setting. We we discussed a lot of things. We we talked about Adam Smith and his ideas of us needing to adopt certain virtues. We also talked about the impartial spectator. Um, with all that in mind, I actually want to pivot to something interesting here because I think it'll be a good device for the next jump off point of our conversation. Can you actually tell our listeners how your 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 book is structured and how Adam Smith's work and thoughts generally made that possible. There's so much in there. We'll never be able to cover too many specifics in our, for the purposes of our chat today. But I thought you just talking about how it's structured, why you chose to do that, and how it just managed to work itself out that way would be very interesting to hear about. Yeah, sure. No, uh, thanks for the invitation to talk a little bit about uh, about the, the book itself. You know, the book itself is really fun to write. It's different from the scholarly monographs that I've tended to write that are, you know, 100,000 or so words, uh, uh, you know, dense prose, all kinds of long footnotes. Um, I, I was fortunate to have an editor and a press with Princeton that wanted me to do something very different. And um, what we what we developed was a book of, I think it's about 30 chapters. And each one begins with a quotation from Adam Smith. Mo- most of them are from, and your listeners probably will know that Smith published two works in his lifetime, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, his great work in moral philosophy, and The Wealth of Nations of 1776, his great work of political economy. Um, And most of the quotations come from one or two of those books, a little bit else from, I think, one of his letters and and one of his uh, one of his class lectures. But what I wanted to do is, I mean, Smith wrote and is a truly beautiful prose writer and a real student of rhetoric. And Smith is um, um, he's eminently quotable. He really knew how to turn a phrase. And so one of the things I wanted to bring out was to highlight how he's able to write in this sort of aphoristic style and give us these little nuggets of wisdom. And so I begin every chapter with a quote from Smith, and then I sort of restate the quote in 21st century uh, uh, English 
um, knowing that for sometimes those sorts of translations are helpful, especially for my students uh, as an audience. Um, but then I give a little bit of an interpretation of it, of what I think he might be, what he might mean there, the significance in Smith's philosophy. So I try and use that um, space of uh, providing about a thousand word interpretation of what Smith might have meant uh, and why it might matter for us to reflect upon it. Um, it was really a fun way to write a book. And, um, you know, the, the publisher also, um, it's a very small book. It's a light book. It's perfect bedtime reading where you can get your little quick nugget and uh, hearing me drone away for a few pages, you can doze off to sleep. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed um, writing that way. Because as I think I mentioned in the first half of the program, my real hope is to have people read Adam Smith. I really, I think my life is better. One of the best things that's happened in my life has been the discovery of Adam Smith. Um, and um, I really wanted to be able to share that with others. So I hope that if nothing else, the book will be an introduction, um, not to reading more Hanley, but certainly to reading more Adam Smith. No, I, th I think the book itself is great. And, and I just want to say that there's at least two people in this podcast here who's they feel their lives are better because of Adam Smith. So myself included. So there you go, listeners. If you haven't, if you haven't gone to Adam Smith, there you go. Just, just for fun. I wanted to read for those listening. If they haven't checked out the book, just Google search it, check out the way it's structured and all the chapters. I mean, uh, you know, Ryan does a great job of taking everyone through Smith's thoughts. I mean, just to, to name a couple of interesting chapters here, they're very short, but you can read about self-interest, caring for others, imagination, bettering our condition, miseries and disorders on loving, on flourishing, on being lovely, on seeing ourselves. All of this stuff comes out of Adam Smith's thoughts and, and I think Ryan does a great job of putting that all together there, there's so much in the book as I said earlier it'd be impossible to get into anything specific so I thought actually as, as another question on the point of the, the book itself I thought it'd actually be fun to ask you you know the book was released in September of 2019 if I saw the note correctly um, mm -hmm. lots changed right after that as you well know and there's a lot of things happening right now that are very uh, different than we felt all felt in September 2019 are there any chapters or topics you covered in the book that you would think resonate more now or are even more interesting to, interesting to you now, just two years later after so much has changed? Or would there be something you changed or have added? Or has, has your, any of your thoughts changed since that 2019? Because that published date's very interesting to me because only a couple yeah, months later. No, that's, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely right. I think every book is to some extent... I was taught this by a great teacher many years ago that of all the timeless classics in the history of political philosophy, they all begin as inter they begin, even if they go beyond, they begin as interventions in real life and real politics mm. at, at very specific moments. Um, and um, uh, my work, at least on that limited front, is similar that um, I I've been very much affected by what's happened in our world. Um it's a great question. And um, here's the thing that I'm most struck by. And I say this as, as an educator, as somebody that works with college students, uh, as somebody that is a parent and has um, uh, a young child of my own, actually not so young. She's the dedicatee of the book as it happens. Um, but, um, you know, we live in, to say the very least, very disorienting times. And for all of us who work on college campuses and work with younger people, especially, We've all been sensitive to the notion, or to, to, not the notion, but to the reality of the fact that anxiety levels among our students are really, really very high. And there's all kinds of ways, very good data that quantifies this and gives us the metrics on it. 
And even if you didn't know the data, if you've been in the business long enough, you'll see that some things have changed. And I'm, I, 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 I can't tell you all the reasons why it's changed. Our complex world throws a lot at us that we're not always uh, easily ready to deal with, uh, especially um, uh, for the think of the generation. I'm teaching freshmen right now. And when I think of what they've seen in their formative political years, no wonder somebody might be anxious. But to bring it back to the book, you know, I think Smith was was really deeply sensitive to the phenomenon of human anxiety, maybe more so than any other philosopher of the Enlightenment. Mm. Um, I think he himself, I'm not a psychologist, but I'd be willing to diagnose him, uh, armchair diagnosis of some sort of what we today would associate with OCD or other anxiety issues. And um, he's really very astute in talking about what individuals can do to help manage some of their anxiety in the face of some of these great challenges. And I think he really anticipates, uh, and I'm not the first to to say this, but he anticipates a lot of the cognitive behavioral therapies that that modern psychologists have worked on. Um, Martin Seligman is 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 a very famous psychologist from the University of Pennsylvania, who is known for writing on um, on positive psychology as well as anxiety issues. And he's seen some of the connections between Scottish Enlightenment philosophers and the work that's being pioneered today. In my book, I briefly deal with his thoughts on anxiety, but I did so in what was a fun chapter to write. Uh, it's a chapter where he describes drinking alcohol. Uh, he has one funny little line about beer taxes where he says that, quote, man is an anxious animal. And he says it's perfectly okay to have spirits that take away the cares every now and then. And so he thinks that we should make sure to have low malt taxes so that workers are able to have a drink every now and then. And I play that up a little bit in the book because I like to have a drink every now and then. Um, But at the same time, even though it's funny the way Smith presents it, it's funny, or I at least try to present it in a lighthearted way in the book, there's also something very real and very serious about the levels of anxiety that people are suffering from today. And um, if there's any side that I think Smith, I wish that I could draw out a little bit more, I think it might be that, the, the positive, uh, beyond just, hey, have a drink, all the other very positive things he has to say about taking steps to manage anxiety. Yeah, and on that note, one thing I've, I've found personally very interesting is just for obvious reasons like the kind we just just been talking about in the last two years there is a discourse even like in in just like you know popular psychology writing or just even the the self-help stuff that we've referring to before a lot of that is actually centering around terms like self-love now and things like that it's a lot of it seems to have come around from just you know let's call it the the pre-pandemic days where you'd see a lot especially in the business press too about getting ahead career this that the other thing and now even for instance you know i've I've seen a lot of business press and for people and, and career coaching that really is talking about taking a more whole some self-love approach to your entire life and how your career is just one part of it. So, so you said he anticipated quite a few things, even in the, the popular sentiment seems to be as well. I couldn't agree more. I was just reading in my, I mentioned University of Chicago, the alumni magazine just profiled one of the economists there, I believe his last name is List, John List, who wrote a book um, about um, the wisdom in knowing when to quit. And so we live mm. in a society and capitalism is long praised, the work ethic of getting ahead and throwing it all at the wall and and learning how to fail and keep pushing on. 
And his point is that, you know, and he talks about sunk costs and all these sorts of things, but, you know, that there's also something just very healthy in knowing when enough is enough and knowing that we have limits and knowing when to make a turn and shift somewhere else. So, yeah, so I see that, too. And, um, yeah, maybe there's uh, uh, who knows if uh, who knows if uh, Professor List has also read a little bit of Adam Smith on the other side of the Chicago Smithians here. Right. Shifting gears to sort of an interesting question now, and and some people think this question could have been asked up front, but I actually think it's personally, and you tell me if you disagree, of course, I think it's actually even more powerful and juicy with all the context we just established about two thirds into the way of our chat now. So, of course, feel free to take this whatever way you please. But let me ask Ryan, then what is our great purpose, according to Smith, then? I think now that we've unpacked so much, I think it's actually a better platform to, to jump into that. When, when, when yeah, I asked that great. question. So that, that's obviously the uh, the title of the book, Our Great Purpose, Adam Smith on Living a Better Life. And so when, when you ask um, what is our great purpose, when I hear that, I can't help but think of, um, and now I'll date myself, but one of the great movies of my childhood was um, uh, a great movie with um, Steve Martin who played a central role in a movie called The Jerk. And uh, for those who have seen it, uh, uh, this is a slight spoiler, but one of the great moments in the book is when he discovers not his great purpose, but his special purpose. And uh, it becomes one of the sort of comic centerpieces. So when you say, what is our great purpose? I can't help but have Steve Martin here screaming in in my ear. Um, But Smith means something very different. And in fact, when he he himself uses the phrase, he uses it in a very specific context. And he's asking a question. This comes out in um, part one, chapter three of the theory of moral sentiments, where he talks about what is the end or great purpose of human life, which we call bettering our condition. And so then he gives actually this remarkable answer. And he defines bettering our condition in economic terms. But there he says that it involves... Um, Um, getting ahead and having others look at us with attention, as he says, sympathy, complacency, uh, approbation. But what I find interesting is that even though that's where he uses the specific phrase, he develops across his moral philosophy much more broadly uh, and understanding that our great purpose, um, it almost can't be reduced to the singular. Our great purpose on some level is living well, but that requires that we do a lot of things well and that we balance a lot of competing attachments, competing inclinations, and competing and competing responsibilities in our lives. So, um, you know, our great purpose on one level is what's provided in the subtitle of the book. It's to live well and to flourish. What that, but the devil's in the details. And what that requires, though, and the interesting part is that it requires both learning how to better our condition in a healthy way, but also to do that while balancing the many other challenges that we have and that, that face us as human bo- beings living in the world in which we live. And on that note, I, I want to sort of pivot into something, you know, comes across in the uh, in the book and 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 clearly in your thought. But, you know, on, on the fact that this isn't just, as you said, I think actually towards the beginning of our uh, talk today as well together, which is that, you know, this isn't just like, you know, uh, for, for, for the sake of it, you know, your interest in Smith, you also think he's, he's very relevant, all these questions today, and a lot of his writings are still very relevant, too. One of the reasons in the book that, that you point out that I found very fascinating and interesting that I'd like you to elaborate on, if you could, is, is that you, you sort of talked about just, just the accident of when 
of the timing of Smith being alive. Like, you know, he, he was sort of able to speak of a commercial society before it really took off into what many would look at as sort of that industrial age of the 19th century. And we just exited the 20th century and, and so on and so forth. But it, to me, when, when I thought of that point you made where just the, of when he was actually alive and what he was observing, it really does occur to me that he does really seem to be on, on, on the crux of that time. And, and he was, for his work to resonate, I guess is what I'm trying to say, still today, um, you know, 200 years later it, it very 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 prescient to say the least but also he had just the seedlings in his eyes of, of what was starting at that time so i was wondering if you could elaborate on just that point specifically because the timing of his life it's a very interesting context yeah no certainly i mean so so smith it's funny that you say that because i was just in a coming off a variety of phone calls in the smith world here we're all gearing up because smith is about to celebrate uh next year his 300th birthday or we're going to celebrate it for him so he was born in 1723 and then um and then died in 1790 and um it's a pretty good run for an 18th century guy uh and it was also a remarkable moment i mean for all kinds of reasons obvious and less obvious on the one side, on the more obvious side, you know, Smith lived and was one of the great contributors to the high European enlightenment um, and got to rub shoulders with and become friends with um, many of, of the characteristic figures that that, that helped shape uh, early mo- or, or modern philosophy. Um, but also in terms of what he saw, I mean, Smith was a consummate observer uh, and a real um, empiricist insofar as he really was very keen to what was actually happening on the ground and very curious about it. And he was witnessing at the time that he lived the remarkable transformations that shape our world. Um, one of, uh, 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 there's this wonderful phrase that the British historian Hugh Trevor Roper uh, uh, describes in describing Smith's world is that when Smith was a student at Glasgow as an undergraduate, so we're talking now the end of the 17, uh, in the 1740s, that um, you could go eight miles outside of Glasgow and meet human beings, the Scottish Highlanders, who had never seen the wheel before. This at the same time that the port city of Glasgow was the Mm. most flourishing port in the most powerful maritime empire the world had ever seen. Right. And so you have this remarkable conflux of emerging incipient commercial modernity right next to, right up on the heels of um, traditional generation uh, of agriculture, subsistence farming, shepherding, going back to time immemorial. And Smith, as a very keen student of uh, economic historical evolution was fascinated by and understood the magnitude of these changes that were happening right literally before his eyes uh, during the time of his life and which have, have served to become in hindsight you know the defining features of our world what he didn't see was large-scale factory work he didn't live into mm. the into the 19th century and so that would have been, you know, in the sort of what ifs, it would have been fascinating to have his reflections on that. Um, but he did see the beginnings, especially of the ways in which international global trade 
would inevitably transform the lives of all human beings. Uh, and uh, I think we're grateful to have him as a chronicler of that moment uh, and one who so well anticipated the, 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 both the promise and the perils of what we face today uh, as international traders. But, but even on that note, I find quite interesting because later on the Wealth of Nations, if I remember correctly, he does talk about the potential uh, dangers, if you will, the division of labor, for example. So even then he still understood, he tried to take his thought from what I understand correctly, like further about, okay, you know, he talks about the benefits the division of labor brings, for example, but does talk about, you know, a human being becoming, I, I, it's rough in my head, but I think like, you know, as stupid as and ignorant as one could possibly become if that, you know, is taken to an extreme, if I remember correctly. So even, even there, he sort of at least is completing the thought and zooming out, it seems to me. Yeah, that's wonderful, Alex. I'm, I'm delighted to hear not every reader of The Wealth of Nations makes it to the end, to book five, <laughs> right. uh, where all of this important stuff comes out. I mean, book one is where he praises the division of labor and its increased productivity and efficiency. Uh, book five, he talks about, you know, the negative externalities uh, and especially that's a way of minimizing it by using that phrase. But he really does call it, um, I mean, stupidity. Mental mutilation is his term. The corruption of all of man's intellectual, social, and martial virtues. Th these are the terms he uses to describe it. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it does really anticipate. I'm about to watch with one of my um, undergraduate classes, um, Charlie Chaplin's um, uh, remarkable movie, uh, the title is Modern Times, um, right. uh, and which, you know, is a, a satire, but a tragic satire of factory work, among others. And all of this would have been well known to Smith well before uh, the 20th century. But um, he really is sensitive to it. And, you know, the other thing worth saying here is that I, I think Smith is remarkable. And one of the things I admire about him most as a thinker is his tremendous intellectual honesty. Um, there's no doubt that Smith was a, the Paragon free trader. He was a champion of a very specific vision of the market order uh, and had many arguments for um, why it was a good thing. He also never shies away from the critique that in some ways it might have been a bad thing or that it brought with it certain negative consequences. And I've always just, I find him, and I try to impress this upon my students in an age of spin and one-upmanship and gotcha lines and debates and all this sort of thing. Um, Smith took seriously the critics and he wanted to confront the best arguments of the critics head on. Uh, I spent a lot of my early academic work on Smith working on his critiques of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the great critic of market orders, um, contemporaneous with Smith, who Smith profoundly admired and thought was serious and had to be taken seriously. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that there's a lot substantively that comes out in Smith that's very useful on that front, but simply as a model how to do real philosophy mm -hmm. in an honest, truth-seeking way uh, that um, is less concerned with winning an argument than to getting towards what is humanly beneficial. I, th I think he's just, you know, I'm obviously biased, but um, he's persuaded me on this front that that's a real model to do, uh, a way to do philosophy. Mm -hmm. and, and as I mentioned before, like, you know, the, the part about how he's ultimately like Wealth of Nations, for example, you know, it's, it's an inquiry into it. It's not a, it's not a propaganda pamphlet, uh, you know, to basically say all this stuff is good. Now everybody go run off and write blogs about it or whatever. But, um, but, but do, do you, do you find, and I'm, I'm specifically asking this question to provide some context for those that, you know, uh, may have been mostly introduced, uh, you know, to Smith through like, you know, 
uh, very standard, shorthanded, like, you know, classical liberal terms, for for lack of a better term for the sake of this, and, you know, where they're, they're hearing about him as sort of, uh, you know, uh, the grandfather of economics and political economy in certain ways, you know, the sometimes they talk about, the, you know, one of the initial proponents and grandfather of capitalism or whatever, all, all that stuff tends to be, seems to be based on a sliver of what's in the wealth of nations. Do you, do you find that the wealth of nations is a little bit of a, a, a naked experience if you don't complement it with what's really going on in theory of moral sentiments? In other words, should they really be viewed as two things that you have to read through completely to understand how they both talk to each other in your view? Yeah, I, I, I think that, I mean, there's two things there. One is, and this goes back to an old scholarly problem that we've called Das Adam Smith Problem, taking it from the 19th century German intellectuals that coined it, which is, how does Smith's moral vision and how do his economic vision comport? How do they go together? Um, how do the theory of moral sentiments, the book, and the wealth of nations, the book, go together? Most scholars don't believe that there's really a fundamental tension between these. And in fact, um, even within the individual books, we see that Smith is sensitive to both the moral and the economic phenomena. And he really does, some of the most important passages he has on market phenomena come in the theory of moral sentiments. And so what I think is important to go back to is the fact that Smith had this capacious vision of human beings who were not simply economic agents acting in one way in some limited sphere and moral agents acting differently in another sphere. He saw us simultaneously as existing in these realms. That's what human society is. Uh, you know, trading markets are not amoral or immoral. They, they are, in fact, embedded in a very thick, I used the word anthropology before, um, but uh, a, a thick network of, of human connections that Smith thinks will always have a, a moral balance to it. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, you know, the way you just described it, Alex, that many people are introduced to um, Smith through you know, the more conventional idea is he's the father of the invisible hand and he gave rise to capitalism. And all those things are, are in fact true. And they're an important part of the story. I think we'd be somebody that works on Smith's moral philosophy. I'd be the first to say it would be simply a folly if we tried to deny those things. And we shouldn't. Uh, it's what, one of the things that makes Smith remarkable. But the, what makes Smith remarkable is that um, the way in which he defined the invisible hand and commercial society are much thicker than the ways in which right. the stereotypes today have come down the pike. And I mean that both, and this is, an, I think, an important thing to mention in this particular moment, um, liberalisms, both its defenders and its detractors, have sometimes tried to fight out the battle on a very thin view of the human person, thin view of institutions. Whereas I think that there's some resources within central figures within the liberal tradition, um, uh, Smith, certainly one of them, Alexis de Tocqueville, another, who um, both the detractors and the supporters um, do well to try and come to terms with before we try and um, liberalism thumbs up or thumbs down. It's a much richer phenomenon than I think sometimes the dime store versions have allowed it to be represented. Right. And, and on that exact note, uh, that works out for, for the last question I wanted to ask you be, before we head to our, our formal wrap up, which is um, you, you talk about it towards the end of your book and you, you call attention to 
you know, this is in the context of why Smith is relevant today, but it's also clearly uh, why you're so interested in him. You talk about his, his method and the kind of philosopher that he actually aims to be is, is you know, based on asking and approaching the ancient larger questions. Uh, well, on the other hand, uh, you know, uh, you, you also called attention to the fact that if someone went to a philosophy department or thinks about philosophy as today, for example, it's a highly technical field. People from the outside might not be able to understand it. When I put those two things together, do, do you feel like there, there is something generally missing, whether it's at the academic level or just even in, in the general mind, of, of socially speaking, about sort of thinking on these bigger questions and, and really zooming it out to that level rather than just getting into highly technical, very specific questions? In other words, talking about our great purpose and so on and so forth. It seems that you think that that's a very good, good place to start and a place that more people need to zoom out to, in other words. Yeah, I, and I, I think that I've always been fascinated by the way, I, I love the way in which you put Zoom out. Um, Smith does that in so many different places, is that he envision, he encourages us to envision and to see the world differently. And he's often talking about the distinction between things seen on a micro level and things seen on a, a macro, the, the widest possible level. Uh, he does that when he talks about trade and economic phenomena. He does that when he talks about planetary motion uh, and, and astronomy. And we see it just again and again. And he's really a capacious thinker who wants us to see the complexity and the beauty of these really intricate, and this is one of his favorite words, systems. Um, and his vision of politics, his vision of economics, again, his vision of scientific phenomena, it's always trying to get us to see the big picture, the wide angle view. Um, and do I think it's um, I, good for us to do that today? Absolutely. I think that it's something that Smith really encourages us to strive for. As Smith would say, though, it's harder now than ever. And for a variety of different reasons, not least of which is specialization. Smith was, um, I, I'm teaching right now another philosopher, Leibniz, who was, wrote a little bit before Smith, but in some of the scholarship calls him one of the last, quote unquote, universal geniuses. Well, I think Smith could make a pretty strong, Smith and Kant would probably be the real last universal geniuses who were able to make real inroads and advances in a variety of different fields. That's really hard to do now, given specialization. I was trying mm -hmm. to read a medical journal article today, and I am the first thing for a physician, and it was utterly baffling, and I had to have friends help uh, translate it. Um, and, and so uh, to have that really capacious view, is anybody able to do that, given all of these different levels of specialization? Very hard today. But at the end of the day, we're still individuals. We still all have one life to live. And when it comes to moral phenomena, um, maybe intellectual specialization is less important than really that wide angle view and being able to see our own lives and our own place within the whole from that larger perspective. So um, certainly as moral uh, agents today, whatever happens in departments of moral philosophy, there's a lot of specialization there. But as embodied moral agents, all of us who are trying to live the best lives possible, I think that wide angle view he inspires us to, to try and assume is still one that's noble and worthy to aspire to. And it's actually about that time. I'm going to move us to our, our, our formal wrap up here. Uh, Ryan, in, in each of our episodes, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word in, in a manner of bringing the conversation full circle and putting a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let, let me officially ask you what is ultimately the last question, the wrap up question. 
What do what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on Smith's work? Your thoughts on it? What are great purposes and, and the relevance of, of these questions today? In other words, if you wanted someone to have one, two, or just a few takeaways from our conversation today, if anything, what would you want them to take away? Sure, uh, that's 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 good. I mean, to, to boil things down, uh, Smith himself uh, uh, admired that particular approach. Um, let me do uh, if I can limit it to two here. Of course, one of course. is. I hope one thing that readers or that listeners will take away is perhaps an inspiration to go out and read some Adam Smith. Um, uh, And I mean that seriously. I tried to, I mentioned this before, uh, I tried to provide an introduction, but I think the book is, my book is ultimately successful if it leads people to go out and buy Smith's book and to read Smith's book. Um, There's no substitute I try and be as good a guide as I can, but I tell my students this too. There's no substitute to encountering serious ideas firsthand on one's own. Uh, And I think that that's profoundly and crucially important. So that's one, go read Smith. The second is, um, I meant what I said in the subtitle of my book. And I think Smith means this too, which is our goal in trying to discover our great purpose is not to lead people to live one particular kind of life but rather to lead um, in the subtitle of the book, a better life. There's lots of different excellent lives. And one of the reasons why Smith, I think speaks to our age is that he's not trying to shoehorn us or pigeonhole us into one particular model of quote unquote, the best life. Um, I think Smith was really genuinely a pluralist who saw that um, there's lots of ways to live well, But even as we see the examples of people living well, there's an opportunity for all of us to live uh, our individual lives in a little bit better fashion. And so like the prudent man, this idea that um, wherever we are in the spectrum, however well we think we're living, there's always something uh, uh, lying ahead the next day, a new challenge uh, that can give us continued opportunities for growth. And I love the way that Smith uh, encourages us to take advantage of those opportunities uh, and to think about our lives in that particular way. Excellent. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Ryan, Patrick, Henley, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. You're so very welcome, Alex. Uh, This was really a joy. Your questions were great, and I had a lot of fun doing this. Thank you. Thanks very much. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.